You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, November 21st, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Last week, we wrapped up uh, what we were calling the I Am series, where basically we just spent seven weeks looking at the seven particular I am statements of Jesus, statements Jesus makes in different encounters and conversations with people where he clearly says something about who he is and what that means for how we understand who we are and the life that he holds out to us. And we spent seven weeks looking at that. And last week we were in John 15 and we heard Jesus say that I am the true vine. Abide in me and I in you. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. I mentioned it last week. I'll say it again this week as we get going. That's more than just a nice metaphor. Before he would go to the cross, remember John 13 through 17 is Jesus that night with his 12. His last moments with them before he would give himself up to die in our place for our sins, his last dinner and words with them. In this moment, all of it culminating together, this isn't just a nice teaching metaphor that Jesus is offering them and now us. This is Jesus holding out a vision of the Christian life, a a vision of the fullness of life that he's been talking about in all of these different statements he's been making. And so this morning, and really for the next few weeks, and then I think even when the new year comes around at different times, we're going to come back to it periodically because I'm not sure, and I think I am fairly sure, but I'll, I'll be safe. I'm not sure that the vision for the Christian life that Jesus holds out in John chapter 15 is the vision that you and I live with on a day in and day out basis. And it's fair to say if that's the truth, whatever vision of it is that we have is deficient in relation to the vision that Jesus has for us. And so I've been asking myself some questions, and I'll explain it here in just a second, that what if we've been settling for, or what if the church at large, and the church even here local, has been holding out or offering a a knockoff version of the fullness of life that Jesus has been offering out to us. What if that's the case? And so I'll just say this as we get started. I'm going to put all of my cards out on the table here. Um, This morning, it's going to take the better part of our time together for me to kind of walk you and us together through the process that got me to the place where I've been wrestling with this and and thinking about this and why I said last week, I, I do believe that abiding with Jesus as he talks about in John 15 is the central organizing primary reality of what it means to be a Christian. I, I want to take you through what has gotten me there, and it's going to take a little while. So it's going to be a little different this morning. If if you've been with us for a while, this this sermon is going to be a bit different than normal, but I'm only going to do it once, so I won't do it every single week. So bear with me this morning to make it through, and I promise we'll hopefully make some sense of it. But there's been this 
really um, strange concern, and I think it's strange to me, but I think it was something God was doing. It started a number of years ago that had been kind of nibbling and nipping at my heart for a period of time. And it came to a substantial head during the craziness of COVID over the last couple of years. And I want to give you a couple of reasons why that's the case as I kind of get us where we're going. Uh, The first is simply this, that during that craziness of COVID, for the first time in a long time, um, I had some space to actually think. Um, This January, we are going to celebrate, I think, I didn't figure it out in between, I should have figured it out. We're going to celebrate 14 years of church, maybe 15, I'm not really sure. One or the other, I don't know, I quit counting, but I think it's 14. 14 years as a church this January, and for 14 years on a personal level, my entire family, our entire life has been oriented around this thing. Decisions we've made about where we live, how we spend our money, what we do, all of it has been oriented around this thing. And for the last, I don't know, seven, maybe eight years, I'm not really sure, there were always increasingly other things and more things to have to think about and figure out. More services, maybe we need to figure out how to start. Different kinds of people or roles we need to think about trying to hire. All these kids keep getting born and we need to be adding other classes. Well, what if we run out of space here and we got to figure, there's always something out that you have to figure out. And then in the blink of an eye, it all stopped. The function, so to speak, that has taken up so much time and energy and attention It just stopped, and there was a space created for me to actually sit and think and wrestle with the things that were nibbling at my heart that had been there for a little while. And one of the big things um, that was really bothering me um, came out in this reaction that I had to the ever-present mantra of the COVID season of, We just need to get back to normal. We just need to do whatever we can to get back to normal. Or we need to do whatever we can to get back to the new normal. And I had a problem with that statement, and I couldn't figure out why, and I kept wrestling with it. And the reality of it was I started asking myself, what if the normal isn't worth going back to? I mean, what is it we're actually trying to get back to? Is it what we should be trying to get back to? Should that be the aim? Should that be the the goal? And I was on a number of conference calls and and various webinars and all kinds of things with pastors of churches like ours, different than ours, bigger than ours, smaller than ours, all this stuff throughout the COVID crisis. And we'd talk about what was happening and we'd do all these things. But when it came down to figuring out that question, like the impulse was always trying to get back to normal. And No matter what call I was on or what webinar I was on, you could boil it all down to the same things. We're going to be able to get back to normal when we're back to just as many or more butts in seats. When there's a certain number in the budget that's represented a certain amount of time since COVID has ended. You're back in the place maybe that you got kicked out of or lost. Then it's all going to be normal. I mean, that's how, as a pastor, you're taught to understand what a healthy or normal or, dare I use the word, successful church really is. 
And every single year, we host church planters here, and we get them for days during the week, and I wish we could work it out where they were here on the weekends so that you could see them and they could see you and there would be a part of it. But they're here with us and, and staff speak with them. They spend a couple of days with us. We go through different things and I love it. I, I don't ever want to stop doing it, but I had to ask myself and all of it, why are they here? I mean, why here? What is it about this place? Is it because we were a church plant much like them and now we have a building and it's something that they can look towards and aspire to and... Is it because, and it's an amazing thing, it's a, it's a glorious thing, is it because, though, we have a large percentage of our members involved in communities and various relationships in the church, and therefore, they're worth our, they're, we're worth their time? And, I mean, what is it? Like, why are you actually even here as opposed to somewhere else? How are we actually measuring what good and normal and healthy really is? In all these times that people have come, in all these different moments we've had to encourage and, and, and teach and do all these things, you know, not one church planter or existing pastor has ever asked the question, well, how are your members doing with loving their enemies this year? How are they doing with blessing those who curse them? Well, it's 10,000 other things that aren't unimportant and aren't bad, but and is that what it's all about? I mean, I started to wrestle. This is what was going on in me for the last little bit. I've started to wrestle. I mean, was the cross and the resurrection and the gospel and all that we hold so dear, has it all been boiled down to more people in seats? They better be comfortable seats. And there better be music that I like. And you better not get heretical. But is it a group that I'm not embarrassed to tell people that I occasionally join and attend on a weekend and doesn't really mess with my lifestyle decisions? And is that what it's all been boiled down to? So coming out of COVID professionally, speaking as someone who this is a profession, do I now have to wake up and make my aim to get back to whatever normal was that reinforce all those things so that everyone felt like they knew all they were supposed to know and heard what they were supposed to hear and got what they thought they were supposed to get. Is that what it all is about? Is that what normal is? Is that what I'm supposed to be aiming us back towards? Is that what God was looking for? Is that what he's looking for? How well we measure up in that sense. And so I started wrestling. I'm just be very honest with you. I started to wrestle. It, is that really all there is? I mean, 14 years of all that's gone into it. I mean, of all that's gone into it by our own decision and sense of God's calling, but is that all there is? Is this all there is? Get you back, make you comfortable, make you feel good, make you confident in what we're doing. That we, is that really all there is? Is that what this has all been about? And I had a really hard time with this idea of getting back to normal because I'm not really sure normal was worth getting back to. I mean, if I spent 14 years, not intentionally, but unintentionally, cultivating the very consumer-minded church that I was so scared of in the first, it just has a different wrapper. Because when you hear that statement, you have a different church in your mind, maybe. 
but underneath it's still the same. Our wrapper just looks a little bit different. Is that what I've done? And instinctively, you're hearing me, I get it, instinctively, there are a lot of you who want to shake your head and go, no, 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 that's not what you've done. This place, I get it, God's done great thing. I, I get it. But let's all be honest for a moment and at least admit that we're all very good at giving the answers we think we're supposed to give. So I say I'm wrestling with, is this all that it's been boiled down to? Is this what's happened? And you go, no, 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 no. My question to you is, does your life, how you live, how you speak, how you love, how you orient yourself in the world. Does it tell a different story than the answer you so instinctively want to give? As one writer said, instead of counting Christians as a measure of getting back to normal, let's say, I think what we need to do is actually weigh them. Now, no trigger warning there. Uh, we're not going to put scales out in the foyer, I promise. Um, what he was getting after there, though, is this reality of have we grown bigger hearted when it comes down to the things that truly matter of spirit and soul? Have we really grown? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, and so on. Have people really matured in Christ's likeness? Or have they just participated in church? It's the question. What if the new normal, right? What if the new normal meant larger Christians? Bigger-hearted Christians, maturing Christians, not just more of them around. What if that's what the new normal became? And I was wrestling with this reality and was asking myself, am I crazy? And you're, some of you will sit there and go, no, 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 that sounds amazing. And yes, it does, but then you've got to still be honest. You just got to give yourself a moment of honesty. I mean, one of the things that those of us who would identify as being a part of the church have in common with those who would identify and self-profess to not be a part of the church, one of the things that we have in common is a profound disappointment in the maturity of the church. It's true. It's true for the way you feel about your own spiritual life at times. There is this gap between the fullness of life, this zoe that Jesus has been talking about in all of these statements, that he's continually talking about in all of the ministry that's recorded for us in the Gospels. There's, there's this gap between what he's talking about, this vision of life that he holds out, this John 15 participation in his divine nature, with his very spirit, 
Spirit coursing through our lives, producing Christ-likeness, bearing, increasing fruit in us and through us. There's this disparity between the life He holds out and the day-by-day, year-after-year reality that you and I, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, have to come to terms with. And there's a frustration with that. And here's the thing, we're really good at going, you know what, it's a fallen world. I'm never going to be perfect. And there's truth in that. But it's the same impulse that goes, you know what, I really don't have any responsibility to to communicate the gospel, to give witness to Christ, to this person over here, because God's sovereign, he'll just do whatever you want to do. That's true, he is sovereign, but you're incorrect and incomplete in how you're thinking about it. I mean, we're really good at that. And so we go, it's a fallen world. I'm never supposed to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. Well, yes, but here's the thing. If you'd be willing at some point, just take a moment and sit back and ask yourself. Look at the ark. If you've you've been following Jesus for a little while now, look at the ark of the last five, ten years, whatever it may be, and ask yourself, how... How much have I really changed? How much have I really changed? How am I doing with that blessing those who curse me and loving those who are my enemies? I mean, the disparity and kind of where we are with this was on profound display even during the pandemic. I mean, if the pandemic wasn't enough, the cultural fabric of our country was being ripped to shreds during the whole thing. And you know, the church, not just a local, but the church, God's people, we, we weren't standing amidst all the chaos as light to a people in such a way that prompted them to look at us and go, man, how in the world can we respond to this like you? How can we live like you? It wasn't happening. But we were very ready to bombard everybody with all the answers to questions that they weren't asking. And why weren't they asking? Well, we didn't look or sound any different than anybody else. You know, we we love to go to it all the time. When, When Peter said, be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you, you know that what he said presupposes that there's something so distinct and evident in the way that you live and the way that you speak that a watching world, and when he said it, in the midst of tremendous ostracization, in the midst of tremendous suffering and trial, would look at you and go, how in the world? How do I get that? It wasn't happening. And so there's this disparity between what Jesus is holding out and what I'll argue in a little bit that we've settled for. And so it's not just any one person's fault. I think a lot of the responsibility lies with people like me pastors and leaders in the church because the other thing I was coming to wrestle with in all this time, and again, forgive me for kind of taking you on the journey here, but one of the things I began to wrestle with in all of this too was, I think to speak for the contemporary Western church, I can't speak for history and all those kinds of things, and I think we have the propensity and have for a couple of decades now to feed the church an an imbalanced diet of the gospel. Not a non-gospel, but 
an imbalanced diet of the gospel. And what I mean by that is that in, in our stream of the church, Jesus' death in our place for our sins is most often communicated, presented, offered, explained primarily, primarily in the terms of ransom for our guilt and cleansing from our sin and right standing before God. To all of that, yes and amen. Justification has always been and will always be a central, if not the essential aspect of the good news. But it's not the only thing. There's more to this fullness of life, this eternal life, this zoe that Jesus has been talking about than just having our guilt removed. I mean, once you have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, repented of your sins, turned to Him, yes and amen, justification, forgiveness, cleansing, adoption, yes, you still have to live. You're not immediately zapped up in the portal. Scotty doesn't take you home to heaven right then and right there. You have to live. And this imbalanced diet of the gospel, I I think, not intentionally, but one of the unintentional consequences of it has been the cultivation of a people, the cultivation of a a church, the cultivation of a couple of generations who are willing to die, and rightly so, for the Son of God, but who have no real comprehension or sense that his death and resurrection has anything substantial to do with how they live now. And that's the responsibility of those like me. I mean, faith in Jesus is more for us than just being delivered from the judgment we deserve. I mean, if we're not careful, this imbalanced diet of the gospel, it's a limited picture of what life in Jesus means, and it leaves us thinking that our life now, the space between having seen him and when he returns and we're fully and finally made like him, it it leaves it untouched. And there's a problem there. Because I think we've lived with this imbalance in our gospel diet for so long, I mentioned it last week, but I'm afraid that a lot of us don't believe that real transformation, real change is actually possible. And because of that, the the current life we live, when we get really honest about the disparity we see in our own life between what Jesus holds out to us and talks about and what we experience on a day-in and day-out basis year after year, that disparity, the life we live, exists because of what we've begun to believe is actually possible. That's what we've actually begun to believe. And the local church life, the reflection of the life of a local church is just the reflection of the collective belief of the people in what they think is really possible. And you're going to live up or down to whatever you think is possible. One writer that I've been going back to a lot in, in all of this He said, we need to begin to ask the question, what is really possible when a human life enters into the kingdom of God? What's truly possible when your life becomes engrafted into the true vine? 
Paul would say it this way. We won't get into all the different places this morning. Paul would say it this way, 2 Corinthians 3. When one turns to the Lord, Paul says, the veil is removed. And you finally can see the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus. And now he says, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled face now, because of the grace of God, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Not we might be, not we should be, not we ought to be, not it's possible to be, but there is an active, ongoing work of the dynamic of the divine nature coursing through you by His Spirit, actively transforming, metamorphosizing, that's the word, metamorphosizing you from one degree of glory into another, into that which you behold. Jesus, as we see Him and abide in Him, that's the vision He holds out in John 15. His divine nature, by His Spirit, coursing and working in you and through you as you abide in Him and the fruit of His presence, the fruit of you being with Him, the work of His Spirit begins to be born in you. You become a radically new person, metamorphosized, like a caterpillar to a butterfly, an entirely new person, one for whom it becomes natural to love and to bless those who curse you, not want to run them off the highway, one for whom it becomes natural, a disposition of being to be radically generous to those who are around you. Again, I'm just right now kind of taking you on the journey of a process here. Honestly speaking, I, I don't think that this is the vision of the fullness of life that the contemporary church of which we're a part of holds out anymore. At least not primarily. I don't think the primary thing that we hold out anymore is this vision of the fullness and the abundance and the eternal life, the Zoe life of Christ that He holds out for us as we abide in Him. All that we've done, and I'm just very honest here, all that we've done, 14 years, I would do 95% of it again. And in part, we are trying to put back into place various things that we've done, maybe improve upon them, understand them a bit differently. I do them all again, but I desperately want to work to put them back in their right context in relationship to abiding in Jesus, to seeing Jesus and abiding in Him as the primary organizing principle of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so I've gotten to this place as I've been wrestling with all of this during all of this time to have space to actually think and to process and to see just how guilty in my role I am in holding out something lesser to you of what Jesus actually has for you. And so I can only ask that in the time that you've been with us that you would forgive me for somehow leading you in a direction to see and to desire and to elevate and to evaluate your maturation and spiritual life and the vision that Jesus holds out to you as something less than what he has offered. 
if somehow implicitly in what we've said and done and built and organized, we've communicated to you that participation in here is what he holds out to you rather than abiding in him. It's a deficient vision of the fullness of life that Jesus holds out. It's a deficient vision in relation to what he talks about in John 15. And so, in an effort to at least begin the process, maybe just in my own heart, but maybe even for all of us, given this reality, of moving in the right direction, we have to back up a little bit. And we have to actually reconsider what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus. What does it actually mean to be his disciple? One for whom abiding in Jesus is the central organizing reality of life. What does that actually mean? Let me read you something really quick. Uh, I'm watching the clock the best I can, I promise. It's a little bit weird, I know, but here we go. Mark chapter 1, just listen to this. Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they, they left their nets and they followed Jesus. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed Jesus. Mark 2, verse 13, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, what's he say? Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at, his t- in his t- at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who, what? Followed him. Mark 8. Let's go there real quick. We don't have a lot of time to go through all of these different things. I'll try to hit the highlights. Mark 8. Let's go 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and what? Follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The invitation of Jesus was always and continues to be for you and I and all who would listen and respond to follow him. And in following him, the invitation is to come and to be his disciple. In Hebrew, that word is Talmudim. In Greek, it's mathetes. Both translate the same way, student, uh, learner, follower. And in our day, that word disciple is loaded down with some massive baggage. One of the biggest bags it's loaded down with, we'll talk about in a minute if I can go fast enough, is the fact that we continually try to use it as a verb. Because it's not a verb, it's a noun. But it means student or, or learner and That's a good translation, it's okay, but for us in our day, in the world in which we live, post-enlightenment, post-Descartes, post-I-think-therefore-I-am, and we all think we're brains with legs, post that day, we hear student and learner, and we think classroom and information transfer. That's what it means. Not really what it means. We got the wrong picture. So follower is another good way to translate the word. But Facebook and Meta and all that stuff, they've ruined everything with that. What's it mean to actually be a follower? You miss it. 
And so we've scrambled for trying to understand exactly what this word actually means, but scholars have argued for, for decades now that the best way for us in our language and experience to truly capture the inherent reality of what Jesus is inviting people into is by using the word apprentice. Apprentice. It's an entirely different thing. In Jesus' day, to follow a rabbi, to be a disciple of a teacher, was to apprentice under him. And Jesus didn't make this up. The Jewish community didn't even make this up. It actually started historically in Greece. Plato was one of the earliest apprentices under Socrates. But here's the thing. You and I come to Jesus' invitation to be his disciple, to follow him, and we tear it out of its cultural context and we Americanize it. And when we Americanize it, we miss the essence of what he's saying. And when you and I Americanize what he's saying and then consistently try to make it a verb, we end up talking about things that are far closer to leadership development and mentorship than what it actually means to be a disciple. Both of those things are amazing. Nothing wrong with either of those things. It's not what it actually means, though. So listen, let me give you a bit of a history. It's a weird morning. Bear with me. I'll give you a bit of a history because we tear this thing out of its context and we miss it. In the first century, Jesus' day, when he's offering this invitation, the apex of their educational system was the opportunity to become an apprentice. When children, both boys and girls, were around the age of five, they would go into what was called the house of the book. It was the first stage of learning. Boys and girls would go, they would learn basic math, basic reading, uh, and they would memorize the first five books of the Bible by age 12 or 13. When they were done, age 12 or 13, the vast majority, the 90% would go back into their homes where they would apprentice with dad in the family business, where they would apprentice with mom in the management of the family home and business. By 13 or 14, the girls were getting married. The boys were, were working with dad and looking for a wife. But for the 5% of boys who showed a particular level of promise in the book, they would be offered the opportunity to go through the house of learning, stage two. And there was this little room, it wasn't really little, but it was a room that was built off of the local synagogue. And there, from about the age of 12 or 13 to the age of about 16, they would study, 15 probably, they would study under a dedicated teacher who was probably a scribe. They would not only have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, by the time they were done with this, they memorized the entirety of the Old Testament. They would be taught the various rabbinical traditions and teachings of understanding that Old Testament by the scribe. So they had an understanding of how, how Tim and how Zach and how Dr. D understood these passages and what they would say about them, and they were taught these things. And at about age 16 or 17, for the Rhodes Scholar, for the one, the two, maybe the three, depending on how big the village was, who showed a particular level of promise. A rabbi would have an opportunity to come, and he might invite Zach to an interview. And in this interview, he would grill him on his understanding of the Old Testament, his memorization of the Old Testament, his understanding of what Dr. D said about this passage and how he understood that, and he would grill him to see if he had within him the potential to one day do what he did. And if he felt like this boy had the potential, he would say, come and follow me. Become my apprentice. 
And he would have the opportunity now to be a disciple or the apprentice of a particular rabbi. This life that he led as an apprentice or a disciple was organized around four goals. If you don't get anything this morning, get this, because this is going to shape where we're going for the next few weeks. His life was organized around four goals. First goal, chief goal, primary goal that made all the other ones possible. First goal in his life was to be with his teacher, to be with him. An apprentice, a disciple, it was a a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week organizing system and way of life. It was how life was ordered. It's how decisions were made. He slept by his rabbi's side. He ate with his rabbi in every meal. As his rabbi went from village to village to teach in the synagogue, the rabbi would walk in front of his apprentices or disciples, and he would saunter. They weren't like fast-paced. He would saunter. He would teach as he walked, and they would be right there close to him to hear him, to listen to him as they followed him. The blessing of the day for those that were apprentices or disciples was simply this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That was a good day. A good day was when you laid down covered in the dust from his feet because you had been with him for so long and so close to him to hear from him and to be with him. Your entire life was organized around the principle of being with him, keeping company with him. So that as you were with him, you could learn his teaching. The way a rabbi understood the Old Testament, the way a rabbi understood the life that God was holding out for his people, the way that the rabbi understood who God was and who we were in relation to him, it was called his teaching or his yoke, and you wanted to take his yoke upon you. You wanted to learn everything that he had, and it only happened as you organized your life to be with him, to keep company with him, but you wanted to learn everything that he had so that as you learned everything that he taught, third goal, you could become like him. You wanted to be exactly like him. You wanted to be a carbon copy of him. You wanted to walk the way he walked. You wanted to talk the way he talked. You wanted your intonation and inflections to be like his. If any of you are professional sermon listeners, you've got your favorite podcast preachers. If you go listen to your podcast preacher who's been where he's been for 20 years or longer, every person that preaches when he's not preaching sounds just like him. You ever heard that before? Wait a minute, you got the same inflection, the same everything. That's what happens. The life of this apprentice, though, was a desire to be a carbon copy of your rabbi. Like, we have a hyper-individualized world and culture that we live in. Like, we all want to be our own snowflakes. Like, I'm not like you, I promise. I'm so not like you, we're just alike. But in that day, to be an apprentice, you wanted to be exactly like your teacher, your rabbi, so that the day could come when you've been with him and kept company with him for so long. You've learned and taken his yoke upon you, his understanding of the scriptures of who God is and how he understands life. You've patterned your life and your way of being after him so much so that what you do is the way he would do it. You're just like him, and he would look at you one day, and he would say, go. Go and make disciples. Go and do as I have done. Move the vision forward. Do what I've done. That is what it meant to be a disciple. That is what it meant to be an apprentice. So, you and I are going to be disciples of Jesus. 
apprentices of Jesus. It means at least that we have to begin to do the work of organizing our lives around these same goals. To be with him, to keep company with him, to learn from him, that we could become like him in order to do what he did or live as he lived. And the question is, do we mean that when we talk about being a follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus? Is this how your life is ordered? Is this the organizing filter, the organizing reality of your life? How you determine your time, your ways, your living? Probably not. Partly because we've made disciple a verb. And you can feel free to disagree with me all you want, which is fine, I might be wrong. But in the 269 instances that disciple is used, only two times in the Bible is it paired with a verb. Matthew 28, go and make disciples. But disciple is still a noun. Acts, I think it's Acts 5, maybe it be Acts 5, but it talks about them going and having made disciples. Still, disciple is a noun. The evidence in the Bible overwhelmingly is that a disciple is something we are. It's not something we do. It's not even something that's done to us that we're a passive recipient of. But that's how we talk about it. I mean, let's take another noun in the Christian language and see if we do the same thing. How about follower? When was the last time you ever asked somebody, who's following you? Who are you following? And you can't even get it out of your mouth. How does your church do followership? It doesn't work. But that's what we've done. And there's dangers to this. And we're reaping the fruit of the dangers. I've done it for decades. I'm as guilty in all of this as everybody. The first problem of turning disciple into a verb and Americanizing it in the way that we actually have done is that we put the responsibility on someone else to make you more like Jesus. And so what happens? We wake up one day and we realize the disparity in our life and what Jesus holds out to us and we go, well, no one's ever discipled me. I've never been discipled. And we get bitter. Well, I'm just this way because no one ever discipled me. If disciple isn't a verb, it's a noun, the onus is on who to be dependent upon the Spirit to be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus? You. But if it's a verb, you know what else happens? It makes someone other than Jesus our rabbi. It makes someone other than Jesus our teacher. And, and the question before us, and this is what's been nibbling at me for so long now, is, well, those of us who identify in heart and soul and spirit as Christians be willing to reconsider what it means to actually be a disciple, an apprentice, Will we learn from Jesus how to live the life of his kingdom into every corner of our existence? You know, when we've Americanized this thing and we've made it a verb and we've turned the idea of what it means to be a disciple into a process of leadership development and mentorship, we've ultimately made being an apprentice of Jesus an optional thing the majority of the church has opted out of. I can pull the books off the shelf in the library. Again, not inherently bad, wrong, evil. This is what we've done. We can go and communicate the gospel. People can respond to it. They become converts to Christianity or converts to Jesus. And then for those who are discipled, maybe they'll become disciples. 
And for those who are really effective disciples, they'll become good workers for the kingdom. But we've made being an apprentice of Jesus something that may or may not be important or valuable or necessary at all. You can opt in or opt out of, and the majority of the church has just opted out of it. And we're reaping the the rewards, if you want to call it that, of this. One writer said, an apprentice of Jesus is one who is intent upon becoming Christ-like and so dwelling in his faith and practice that he or she systematically and progressively rearranges all of the affairs of their life to that end. That's what a disciple had to do in order to be with their teacher, to take the yoke of his teaching upon them that they could become like him and do what he did, they had to rearrange all of the affairs of their life in order to be with him. That keeping company with him would be the primary and essential organizing principle of their life. When he called the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me. It's an astonishingly inclusive word there. If anyone Remember, the apex of the system, those who got, the, the Rhodes Scholars who might get the invitation to become apprentices, only the top 1.5% of boys. Jesus says, if anyone, male, female, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. If anyone would come after me, not chase me, follow Follow me, be my apprentice. If anyone would be my apprentice, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit to gain the whole world if it forfeits your soul? This starts the primary, essential goal that paves the way for everything else is this dogged determination to be with Jesus, to keep company with Jesus, an intentional awareness day in and day out, moment by moment, of this being with Jesus. We talk all about personal relationship with Jesus in American Christianity, but let me just give you this litmus test real quick. If you were to, if all of the relationships in your life right now looked like your relationship with Jesus, how would that go for you? No sham, just honest. It starts this abundant life that he is holding out to us, that is ours by virtue of his grace and his spirit, the essential and abiding and organizing principle behind it is that you and I systematically order our lives and intention around being with him, keeping company with him. The way that we're with him, it seems lesser than those that were with him in those three years, but he promised, John 14 through 16, that it would be better because when he left, he would send his very spirit. 
to be our helper, to be our guide, to be our comforter. Our spirit, who Paul said earlier we read, is the Lord himself. He would take up residence in us. His very spirit, his divine nature. We would have an expansive access to Jesus moment by moment, day by day, for this life that he is calling us to. This is the reality that captured a guy you probably heard of named Brother Lawrence, who was a 15th century Parisian, who moved into a monastery and started washing dishes. And while he's washing dishes and his hands are all wrinkled and they're all soapy and other people's food's floating around, his mind and his heart was captivated by this idea that he abides in Christ and Christ abides with him. And he began to write about it, 14 letters about it. Those letters were put together in a book you might have on your shelf. You may have never read it, but you probably have it. It's called Practicing the Presence of God. And this is what Brother Lawrence said. He said, the time of busyness does not with me differ from a time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for me in different things. Just, do you get that? You don't have to be in a monastery to get that one, right? While I'm in the middle of chaos and everybody wants my attention, I possess God in his great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before him in prayer. You and I can keep company with Jesus. Abide with him. Be with him. Even in the midst of craziness. I'll skip this and come back to it for for the sake of time. We're going to talk in the weeks to come about what that really begins to look like and the things in our life that we may have to reorder for the fullness of joy in our soul and how we go about doing it. But I heard one guy say, and I don't think you'll argue with me, that the greatest threat today to abiding in Jesus, to keeping company with Jesus, to this central organizing reality of what it means to be his follower It's not atheism, it's not urbanization, it's not even globalization, it's Instagram and your phone notifications. The fullness of life that Jesus is holding out, being with him and keeping company with him, it is going to cost us something. We're going to have to let our our yeses to Jesus and being his apprentice and keeping company with him and wanting to be with him We're going to have to let our yeses to him in that begin to define our noes to a lot of things in our life. It's going to cost us some things. It's going to shape the way we spend our time, the commitments we make, the way we spend our money, the expectations we have of our days and of one another. But it's out of abiding with him, keeping company with him, that we actually begin to become like him as we keep time with him seeing him and enjoying him. It's in this that his spirit does the work in us to make us increasingly more like him. People for whom it becomes natural to love others. People for whom it becomes natural to bless others. The invitation of Jesus, it's to become his apprentice, not a Christian. And the difference isn't semantics. It's an entirely different vision of the fullness of life that Jesus promises. Jesus is inviting you to be his disciple. He's inviting you to be with him. I mean, my goodness, I want another 20 minutes just to talk about that. 
He wants you to be with him. He has made a way for you to live moment by moment in this life, in his presence, with him. He wants to be with you. He's inviting you to be with him. He's inviting you to be his apprentice, not a convert to a particular religion. And he's not holding this out to the half of the 1%, the best of the best. He's holding it out to anyone who would hear him and want to be with him. But make no mistake, we'll talk about it in the weeks to come. Saying yes to Jesus is inherently saying no to every other alternative vision of the fullness of life. And it will cost you. But I promise you this. The cost of non-discipleship is greater. The cost is your soul. The cost is the fullness of the abundance of life that you were made for, that only Jesus can bring. And so this week, I know this morning was weird. I know it's going. I know it was weird. Here's the thing: this this week, would you take even just a moment to consider what it might be like? for you to be his apprentice, his disciple, in the sense that the goals of apprenticeship and discipleship began to be the organizing principle of your life. What might that mean for you? What might it look like for you? What would it look like for you just to start to make space in your mind, in your day, in your life, to be with Jesus? What kinds of things might you have to begin to put to death in order to gain your soul? The invitation of Jesus is is open to all. It's to be with him and to have life to its fullest, to have him. And so I'll I'll end it this way. Dallas Willard, who I've been in a lot of the last couple of years, he wrote a book called The Great Omission, and it really talks about this disparity and what it means. He ended the book this way. All that is needed from us to change things, whether in the church or in the world, is sustained apprenticeship to Jesus, the Savior of the world, so loved by God. Our directions as we go are clear, to be his disciples, to be his apprentices, to be apprentices of Jesus in kingdom living. And by our life and words as his apprentices, we witness to bring others to know and long for the life that is in us through confidence in him. And just imagine what it might look like for a local church like this 5, 10, 20 years out to have organized their individual and collective lives around the central primary desire to be with Jesus, that we might become like him in order to live as he lived. His invitation to be with him to this life is open for all who would follow him. He's inviting you to be with him, to become like him, that we might live the way he has, that we might have life. I'm going to pray for us this morning as we get ready to respond to God's word together. Father, I know this is, who knows how to explain this morning, but Lord, whatever was said that shouldn't have been said, whatever wasn't of you, whatever needed to not be said, Lord, I, I trust you to just let it fall on deaf ears. But more than anything, Lord, We need you by your Holy Spirit to awaken us to the desire 
Awaken us to the privilege, oh, the immense privilege by your grace that you are holding out to us to be your disciples. Lord, we've settled for so much less. We've desired and expected so much less. Lord, create in us this longing for the fullness of the life that you have for us. Let this desire encourage and enable us to begin to put to death those things in our lives and in our days that keep us from being with you. And we ask that you would do this in our hearts, in our lives, by your spirit, for Jesus' good name's sake. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.